This is the evening edition of the Daily Podcast Practice Show for Thursday, December 16th, 2021. I'm your host, Rich Grimshaw, here to practice the art, the craft, and the sport of podcasting. And it's good to be here practicing my podcasting, and thank you for being here with me. You can find more about this endeavor over at dailypodcastpractice.com. Born on this day in 1863 in Hampton Falls, New Hampshire, the prolific and influential American architect of collegiate and ecclesi... Let's try that again, Rich. Collegiate and ecclesi... Oh, gosh. Really? Come on, you can do this. He was an American and... (laughs) He was prolific and influential. He was an American architect of collegiate and ecclesiastical buildings, and his name is Ralph Adams Cram, because, of course, a man of his stature would have three names, Ralph, Adams, and Cram. Ralphie got educated at Westford Academy, which he entered at 1875, and Phillips Exeter Academy. Oh, that sounds so very official. When he was 18 years, he moved to Boston, Massachusetts, and worked for five years, in the architectural office of Roch and Tilton, which sounds like an architectural apprenticeship to me. Interesting that if you go to architectural school now to get your degree, you'll you'll spend five years in higher education before you get that degree. But that is an aside. So after that, he went to Rome to study classical architecture. And during an 1887 Christmas Eve mass in Rome, he had a dramatic conversion experience. And for the rest of his life, he practiced as a fervent Anglo-Catholic who identified as High Church Anglican. And I'm not sure at all what that means. Well, in 1900, he married, and he and his wife Elizabeth had three children. Professionally, Ralphie was a leading proponent of disciplined Gothic Revival architecture in general, and collegiate Gothic in particular. And I had no idea that there was a, a branch of architecture called collegiate gothic but apparently there was and ralphie was right there with it he is closely associated with princeton university where he served as supervising architect from 1907 to 1929 and for seven years he headed the architectural department at the massachusetts institute of technocracy wow this guy is no slouch mit he has a long list of works and publications including the Calvary Episcopal Church in Americus, Georgia. Americus, Georgia. Wow. Now, I've been to Americus many times. It's not exactly the hub of prosperity in Georgia, but I'm sure there were enough well-to-do Episcopalians down there in Americus, and they had the money to hire this guy, so they had him do their church, and it's still standing as far as I can tell. So Ralphie died September 22, 1942, aged 78 in Boston, Massachusetts. Happy birthday, Ralphie. I don't think you and I are going to spend much time together on the other side. That's just a hunch. Nothing more than that. Maybe I could be wrong. We'll see what happens. I have a story for you. This story doesn't have a deep moral meaning. In fact, I, I have no idea what it means. It's, it's just a story about some things that I discovered today, this morning, that are, well, well, they're different. And this was kind of a serendipitous event, and I thought that the whole thing would make for an interesting few minutes of podcasting, and that's really why I'm doing it. 
You see, I belong to a Facebook group called If You Ever Lived in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Well, I have lived in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I lived there from 1962 to 1970, and I have fairly good memories of those times, so I'm a member. And this morning I saw a post in this Facebook group about a building that is abandoned and derelict. Looks terrible. Someone was asking what this building's history was, what its pedigree was. And the discussion led to an article in the local newspaper, the Southwest Times Record, for Sunday, January 24th, 1926, telling a little bit about the building. And the article is a, a scanned image of the whole paper for that day. And it's a, it's a poor version. It's a poor scan of the image, okay? And the article itself was kind of less than interesting. So I just started looking through the paper to see what else was noteworthy on January 24th, 1926. And I see this headline in an article that says, Aged Mena Physician Masquerades as Man. Well, this scanned image is grainy, very grainy, to the point of almost being unreadable. But I can get enough to understand that an old doctor, Dr. M. V. Mayfield, in Mena, Arkansas, was sick, ill. Mena is about 70 miles south of Fort Smith. It's spelled M-E-N-A, and I, I have no idea how to pronounce it. It could be Mena, it could be Mena, it could be Mena. I don't know. I sent an email to their visitors bureau this morning asking about that, but I haven't heard back. So in this article, I see that it was discovered that the good doctor whom everyone knew as a man, a male, was, in fact, a woman. <laughs> and that's kind of surprising. So I did what every curious person does these days. I went to the Internet, I went to the Google, and I did a search for Dr. M. V. Mayfield. And sure enough, that story has been recounted more than a few times. So I'm going to go to the version that I found at the Encyclopedia of Arkansas and just relate this to you because it's different. Not something that I expected to find today. So from the Encyclopedia of Arkansas.net, the headline of this article is Mary Victor M.V. Mayfield, 1847, question mark to 1929. Mary Victor Mayfield was a woman who came to Mena, Polk County, Arkansas, in 1918 and practiced medicine in the guise of a man for seven or eight years. A small, kind, and peaceful citizen, she soon became, quote, the cancer doctor, unquote. She put Mena in the national news for the events of January 23, 1926, when her identity as a woman was revealed by the news media. Little is known about M.V. Mayfield's early life. She later claimed that her gender deception began in England. Her parents needed a son, not a daughter, to, quote, protect property rights, unquote, so they dressed her as a boy and raised her in disguise. Mayfield carried the masquerade into adulthood by smoking a pipe and drinking a little liquor when it was available. She explained her never needing to shave by a past application of an, quote, old Indian remedy, unquote, that made the daily chore unnecessary. Its formula was, of course, kept secret. Mayfield arrived in Mena in 1918. She lived and conducted a medical practice in rented rooms above the central meat market 
at 709 Main Street, passing as a man before friends, patients, and other doctors. However, in 1926, at age 79, she was found very ill in her quarters. Dr. W.C. Vandiver, <laughs> apparently all doctors have two initials before their last name, <laughs> apparently. Dr. W.C. Vandiver was called to treat Mayfield. When her condition declined, her caregivers discovered her secret while giving her a bath. <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> would sure do it. As the news spread, the small town in western Arkansas was put on the national map for its he-to-she doctor story. Calls came from news people in Fort Smith, Little Rock, Muskogee, Oklahoma, Kansas City, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, Chicago, Illinois, and New York City. Mayfield wasn't able to pay her medical bills at the time and asked the photographer from the St. Louis Dispatch, F.A. Bamer, B-E-H-Y-M-E-R, Bamer, that's got to be it, Bamer, for a $10 donation. Friends of the doctor arranged for her care in the home of a woman named Sharp. People feared Mayfield would die without telling her life story, and a national effort was made to fill in the details. Word came of two marriages to women and a jail fire in which she was thought to have been killed. A letter from Belvedere, Illinois, claimed Dr. Mayfield was married and, quote, frequented saloons and pool halls, unquote. She also claimed to have worked for the government in Washington, D.C., though this was later repudiated. More questions emerged than were ever answered. In a few months, Mayfield recovered and left Mena. The August 3 issue of the Mena Star printed a letter from Mayfield saying she was living in David City, Nebraska. She returned to Mena by 1927, but had to become a ward of the county for two years in the county farm at Rust. She died on August 24, 1929, carrying most of her life story with her. She was buried in Gone Cemetery, south of Mena, as a pauper in an unmarked grave, and, as she had wished, in men's clothing, with the services performed by a woman, Fanny Weiss. That's quite a story. Something that I never expected I would come across on this day. <laughs> From the very little that I know of Dr. Mayfield, it seems that he struggled with his sexual identity for most of his life, just like many people do today. And I guess many have, as long as our species, Homo sapiens, have been around. I've had a lot of difficulties in my life, but not that one. And I can't imagine what it's like. But for those who do, my thoughts and my support are with you. And that is all for today. I leave you with this riddle. What's the difference between a northern fairy tale and a southern fairy tale? A northern fairy tale begins once upon a time. A southern fairy tale begins, y'all ain't gonna believe this. <laughs> That's for you, Pastor Finley. Maybe you can work that into a sermon. Let's stick a fork in this because it's done. I'm Rich Grimshaw, and you are invited to join me again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>